0: Well, I'm really excited you're here today. We're continuing this series of messages on homosexuality. Um, just this week, there was a local story that was picked up by the Associated Press and carried nationally when the first Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in Lancaster voted to discontinue their relationship with the Boy Scouts of America because, as you recall, a few weeks ago, the National leadership of the Boy Scouts said that uh, troops could have gay leaders. And this particular Presbyterian church had sponsored a troop for 65 years. And their, social, their, their session voted to, to end their sponsorship of uh, Boy Scouts. And, and now it's, uh, they, have a, they replaced it with a new troop. Was it Trail Life America, Trail Life USA? Uh, very, very, very similar to Boy Scouts, but it's a Christian organization And um, I actually exchanged some emails with the pastor because I wanted to encourage him, let him know we were praying for him. I thought he did a good job dealing with the press. But one of the things he said was this. He said, given the choice between following the world and following the Bible, we chose to follow the Bible. Now, they won't be the last church that makes that decision. There will be many more in the days to come. The truth is, in the years to come, churches are increasingly going to be faced with some difficult and painful choices because of the changing attitudes in our culture about homosexuality, and so will individuals who choose to follow Jesus and believe the Bible. So this sermon series is designed to help us understand this issue, what the Bible teaches about it. But it's also designed to help us understand how we are to live and be in this culture as followers of Jesus who believe the Bible is God's Word, how we are to treat people, deal with people, and respond to to where our culture is today because it's important that we know what the Bible says, but it's also important that we know what the Bible says about how we as followers of Jesus are to live in this world in relationship with people who, who disagree with us and even those who may be hostile to what we, we believe. And so by way of review, <clears throat> the first Sunday, we looked at God's design for human sexuality as described in the book of Genesis going all the way back to the creating of the universe, that God is creator, and therefore he is the ultimate authority. And as the ultimate authority authority says, this is my design for human sexuality. And his design is heterosexual sex within the bounds of marriage. God created sex. It's a good thing. It is to be enjoyed. It is for procreation as well. But it's within the bounds of marriage, and it's heterosexual. That's God's design in the book of Genesis. And the issue is not simply... That homosexual behavior is sinful is it is that any sexual activity outside of God's eternal design from the very beginning is sinful. So adultery is a sin because it is outside God's design of the bounds of marriage. In in the New Testament passages we'll look at this morning, you'll see that adultery is in the same sin list with homosexuality. God views it the same way. Fornication, having sex outside of marriage outside the bounds of God's design for human sexuality, pornography. And we talked about Jesus elevating all of that when he said when a man lusts on a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so um, God's very clearly said this is my design for human sexuality. It's a good thing, but it's to be experienced this way in anything outside that. Any sexual behavior outside of that is considered sinful, not just homosexuality, but anything outside of that. Is considered sinful. Now, last week and today, we were looking at biblical passages that talk about homosexuality. Last week, the Old Testament. Today, New Testament passages. And uh, some people in the gay community will argue well, you know, the Bible really doesn't say much about homosexuality, so therefore it can't be that bad or it's really not a sin because the Bible only has a few passages that talk about that. There's a reason for that. Research tells us that only about 2% of the population has homosexual experiences. That means that 98% of the population don't. So therefore, it's a sin that is committed by a very small percentage of our people. That's the reason the Bible doesn't say a lot about it. The Bible says a lot about other sins that are committed much more because they're committed by everybody. Does that make sense? I mean, there's a lot more adultery. There's a lot more lying. There's a lot more stealing. So the Bible talks about the sins that are more common to all of us. That's You know, it's a logical reason why the Bible isn't filled with page after page after page after page, after page about homosexuality because only about 2% of people are ever guilty of that sin. So there's no need for the Bible to say more than it does say it. it it's clear. It doesn't need to go beyond that. It's enough said. Does that make sense? But what we're trying to do is understand what these Biblical passages do teach. And then secondly, what do those who consider themselves Christian but say the Bible does not condemn homosexuality? Those who consider themselves religious or even Christian and say, you know, the truth is you all misunderstand those passages. They really do not call homosexuality a sin. What do those... Persons say about these particular passages. So we're trying to understand the passages, and also trying to understand what the pro-gay community says about these passages. All right. So today, if you will, we're going to look at New Testament passages. Open your Bible to the Book of Romans, chapter one, please. The Book of Romans, chapter one. Then we'll look at two more passages we'll consider together. Are you ready to do some Bible study? Now I know it's been kind of heavy on Bible study the last three weeks. That's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, just think of it like eating fried chicken without gaining any weight. It's really good for you, okay? I mean Bible studies are never a bad, never a bad thing, so we're going to do some more Bible study today, looking uh, at New Testament passages, and we're going to start here in the book of Romans chapter one and remember, remember what I said to you each week? It's important you hear all of these sermons if you miss one that you go watch it on the website or on television. Um, Because if you don't, you won't get the full picture, the complete understanding. And it's possible, I'm not saying you will, but I'm saying it's possible, you might even get not just an incomplete, but even an inaccurate understanding of what the Bible teaches. And I want you to really understand this issue, this subject matter, okay? So if you missed one of the sermons, go to our church website, fbcrockhill.org. And at the top, you'll see the menus. Click on the media menu, and then underneath that, the tab, uh, sermons. And you'll see all of my sermons, they're archived there, homosexual series is there, and you can listen to whatever sermons, you can listen or watch or download it, podcast, whatever you want to do. Or you can turn on your television if you have Comporium, CN2, 9 o'clock Sunday morning, 9 o'clock Sunday night, and watch it on television. Today, last Sunday's message is on, it's a week delay. So if you miss one, catch up with us. I want you to have the full insight into this issue. But let's read together this lengthy passage. Then talk about it. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Remember that word, A-L-L, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every time someone suppresses the truth of God, it results in unrighteousness or more sin. Verse 19, he says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been seen so that they are, what what has been made so that they are without excuse. He's talking about natural revelation. Now, you you look at the complexity and the majesty of this universe and say, there's got to be a God. (laughs) You, You look at the intricacies of the human body. It's not an accident. I mean, aside from what God has directly revealed about himself, just, just natural revelation tells us there has to be a creator. There has to be a God. This, this didn't just happen. It's too complex. It's too, it's too beautiful. It's it, luck. Really? Really? Okay. Let's go on. Verse 21. He said, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, the eternal God that is not weak and never decays or dies, the incorruptible God for an image in the form of, corrupt, uh, of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, things that die. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over, and the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And then in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire, that's important, burned in their desire, their lust toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of this error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. By the way, before I continue... The judgment of God is not always God zapping someone. You know, we have this image that when we do something wrong, God zaps us, right? Well, God does judge, and sometimes He zaps. But oftentimes, the judgment of God is simply this. He doesn't do anything. He lets you make your choices and suffer the consequences. He gave them over. Three times It said here. He gave them over that if you choose to reject him, reject his truth, and make sinful decisions, God will speak to your heart. He'll woo you to himself. He'll send truth into your life through others. But if you reject that, God will let you travel the path you choose. And you'll get what you get. Sometimes the judgment of God is allowing you to experience The anguish and pain and suffering you create for yourself because you reject His rightful place in your life and His truth as revealed in Scripture. And God says, okay, you go that way, I'll give you over, you go that way, but you're responsible for the consequences. Sometimes that's the way God judges, and that's what He's talking about in this passage. Well, He continues that... Not only is homosexuality listed as a sin here, verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all. There it is again, all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. Now notice the list of sins here. Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Did you hear that, kids? Disobedient to parents. Without without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Verse 32 describes our culture to a T. And although they know the ordinance of God, what God says is right and wrong, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but give hearty approval to those who practice them. The culture increasingly says, yeah, go for it. You're right. Do it. It's okay. Now, this is a strong, strong Passage. How do the people who go to church that say the Bible really does not condemn homosexuality? How do they deal with this passage? Well, I'm gonna try to keep this as simple as I can. But there's basically two common approaches. One is what we talked about last Sunday with the Leviticus passage. Some, when you read it, read the literature, their books and their articles and, and journals and so on will say that Paul in this passage is not talking about homosexual behavior as you and I know it today, particularly people who are in a committed, loving relationship. But Paul is only talking about homosexual acts that are part of ancient pagan idol worship. You remember we talked about that last week with Leviticus? They say the same thing and we showed that's not true. But that's one of the arguments that some people make. Another argument is that Paul here is talking about homosexual behavior by people who are actually heterosexuals. Therefore, they're going against their nature because they're really heterosexual, but they're doing homosexual things. So that's their argument. Now, why do they, why do they say that? Well, let's talk about the first one for a minute. Those who say, well, what he's talking about here are people who um, practice homosexual Acts, who do homosexual things during ancient pagan worship. Why do they say that? Well, because in this passage, Paul talks about idol worship, right? He's meant, he mentions it. And as I pointed out to you last Sunday, some ancient religions, when they would go to their shrines and temples to worship their idols, sexual orgies were part of the worship, It could be heterosexual sex. It could be homosexual sex. And in the Bible and ancient literature, they're referred to as temple prostitutes or sacred prostitutes. And so, because that did happen, and Paul here mentions idol worship, they just focus on those few verses and say what he's really talking about here is idol worship and that pagan practice. And that's all he's talking about. The problem is they ignore the context for those verses. Now, all of us know that if you're going to do good Bible study, one of the principles of sound hermeneutics is context. What is being talked about in the larger passage? If you're going to read a story, a news account, have a conversation with someone, the context of what you're talking about matters. Because if you don't have context, you can drop in and pull two, three, four sentences out of any book, any article, any conversation, take it out of context and manipulate it to say whatever you want it to say, right? The only way you can understand what someone means by a sentence in a long conversation or a paragraph or a chapter or a book is context. The context for chapter one is not idol worship. He's not focused on idol worship and that the pagans, that's in there, but that's not the context. The book of Romans is one of the most theological books in the New Testament. And Paul spends the first half of it explaining why people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. He spends the first half of Romans explaining the fact that we have sin, that we are depraved, that we are sinners, and the consequence of that sin is death and hell and separation from God. He spends the first half of this book explaining how someone can be saved, how someone can be forgiven, how someone can be justified with God. And he explains in here that it's not by your own good works. It's not by by following the law. It's by faith in Jesus. And so the first half of this book is all about salvation. It's all about the gospel. And so in chapter 1, after Paul gives his introductory comments in the earlier verses and says to the Romans, I want to visit you one day and I want to share with you, preach to you in verse 15. He says in verse 16, now we're starting to get into the context. In verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be forgiven. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that message because that gospel is the power of God, he says, for salvation to everyone. Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. Salvation, the power of God that saves someone is in the gospel and only the gospel. And he says it's in this gospel that God's righteousness is revealed in verse 17. And you receive the righteousness of God, forgiveness, right standing with God, through faith that comes when you believe the gospel. And then he picks up in verse 18 with why we need the gospel, why we need salvation. And so he starts talking about the wrath of God, the judgment of God in verse 18. He says it's revealed from God against all. All, A-L-L, all unrighteousness, all sin, not just one, all sin. You've heard me say so many times from this pulpit, how many sins does it take to make you a sinner? How many crimes does it take to make you a criminal? We all need the gospel. We all need the righteousness of Christ. We all need salvation because we're all unrighteous. We're all sinners. And so he's laying the foundation for why the gospel is necessary. And he says what happens is, in verse 18, this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness at the end of verse 18. In other words, every time you take who God rightfully is and you kind of diminish that. Remember the very first Sunday, we said the essence of sin is not allowing God to be who he actually is. Not not accepting God as creator and therefore ultimate authority. Because when you do that, then it's easier to kind of reject what he says. And so when the serpent came to Adam and Eve, surely God hasn't said this. He was diminishing God as creator and authority in their life. When you start doing that, then you start thinking for yourself, well, you know, yeah, I kind of, I don't think that's right either. And here's sort of what I think. And so you begin suppressing the truth. And what happens when you suppress the truth? It always results in, here he says, unrighteousness, more sin. Then verses 19 and 20 talks about natural revelation. He said, the truth is, everybody knows there's a God if they just open their eyes and look at the universe. But people at large, they don't want to acknowledge that there's a creator who has authority over them. So what do they do? He says, well, they create their own gods. So he goes on in the following verses to talk about the creation of idols. Now, today, you and I don't create idols out of stone and wood and stuff, right? I mean, some people still do. But most people don't. But you know what we do? We still create our own gods. Because they, they wanted to reject idols. The Creator God is the ultimate authority in their life who spoke the truth and once they rejected Him, they could suppress the truth and, 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 and think for themselves about what was right and wrong. We create our own gods. How do we do that? Well, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I consider myself, quote, unquote, a Christian. I consider myself, quote, unquote, a religious, quote, unquote, a spiritual person. But I just, you know, I just don't agree with what the Bible says there. And you know, I just don't believe God would do this. And I just can't worship a God like that. And, and what do we do? Then we create the God we want in whatever image we want. Just like they may, may have made an idol that looked like a bird or an idol that looked like a bull or an idol that looked like a human being or whatever. We make an idol. We make a God in our own mind, in our own hearts that looks like whatever we want God to look like. And once you become the one who creates God, now listen to this. When you are the one who creates God, you're no longer worshiping the creator. You are the creator. And that's why in this passage he talks about them rejecting God and becoming futile in the speculations of their own mind. Because you create a God that looks like you want him to look, that feels about things the way you want to feel about things, that thinks about things the way you want to think about things. You create your own God. And he says it's done in the lust of your hearts, the desires of your heart, because then all of a sudden that God begins agreeing with you about your behavior. Humanity's been doing that from the very beginning. That's the reason Genesis 1 is so important. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Steve. Brother Jim, not in the beginning, Jim. (laughs) In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, me. Not in the beginning, you. And yet we keep wanting to move God off his throne And create a God that looks like we want him to look. And what he says in this, this chapter is when people do that, God may speak to them, but God will let them do it. God did not create you as a robot. You're free to make those choices. And God will let you. But doing that, grows out of the lust of our hearts, he talks about, because there's all these things we want to do. So we create a God that lets us do them. That's what idolatry is. And it's at the heart of every sin. And so Paul Goes on in chapter 1 saying that shows up in a lot of ways. Now, as a vivid illustration, he says it shows up in homosexuality. Men doing what they would normally do with a woman with a man, and a woman doing what she would normally do with a man with a woman, homosexuality. But that's not the only sin that's mentioned here, is it? It's just the first one. And if, 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 The chapter stopped at verse 28. Then their argument that he's only talking about idol worship and homosexuality that's a part of idol worship might have a little bit more weight to it. But it doesn't stop there. Because he goes on in this same context to talk about all these other sins that grow out of our heart, our lust, our desire for stuff, for power, for whatever. That, that we do when we reject God as creator and ultimate authority in our life so we can justify all these things we want to do. And so he says it's not just homosexual behavior, but in verse 28, at the end of it, God, well, verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. So God gave them over to a depraved mind, messed up thinking, to do those things that are not proper. Earlier in this chapter, do those things that, that are from the lust of their heart, those things that are not proper, being filled with, Here it is again. All unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. God says all of these wrongs grow out of our human impulses. Our human instincts, our human desires, our human passions. That, that get out of control, if you will. That, that we justify, if you will. When we remove God from his rightful place as the creator and ultimate authority of the universe and suppress his truth for our own truth that grows out of the fruitless speculations of our own minds and our darkened hearts. And so the context here is not idol worship. It's a much, much bigger issue than that. It's why we need salvation. We're all sinners because at some level we've all rejected God's rightful place in our lives. And so he's giving the the, the basis for the gospel in this passage. But I'm out of time. i got to move on. What about those who say this passage is not talking about homosexual sin, homosexual behavior as we know it, because it's talking about homosexual acts by people who are heterosexual? What they're saying is this. Paul and the people who wrote the Bible did not know anything about homosexual orientation. They did not know anything about people being born Gay, if you will. And therefore, they could not possibly be talking about that because they didn't know anything about that. So he can only be referring to heterosexuals because that's what he thought everybody was. Everybody was a heterosexual. And if a heterosexual, therefore, was doing homosexual things, they were working against their nature. And so when he talks about doing what's unnatural, that's what he's talking about here. Now, you'll read this in books. You'll read this in papers and... Magazines, this is this is the kind of stuff you will hear from the gay community that believes the Bible says homosexuality is okay. But, see, that, that all is built on the belief that Paul and the biblical writers couldn't know anything about sexual orientation. So let's talk about that. One, it ignores the fact of divine revelation that God, who knows everything, could inspire his writers to talk about anything he wouldn't talk about. But secondly, and more importantly... Or are just as important. The idea that Paul and people of his era didn't know anything about sexual orientation is simply historically false. Now they would not have used the terms we use today. Homosexual orientation is a relatively new term. So they would not have used the terms, the vocabulary we use today. But you can go back 300 years before the time of Jesus and read Aristotle and Plato and others. There are secular and Christian writings around the time of Jesus and in the first century or so after that who very clearly talk about people who had a very strong same-sex attraction. They didn't understand it, but they knew there were people that just had this strong compulsion, this strong same-sex attraction. Well, they didn't use the word sexual orientation. They didn't know that that's a new term, but they talked about it. So the idea that those in the ancient world did not know anything about what we today quote-unquote call sexual orientation, is simply false. They knew there were people who had this strong urge. Paul was a very educated man. To assume he didn't know anything about that is an argument from silence that has very very little credence to it. So, yeah, they knew about it. They just didn't call it what we call it, but they, they knew about it. When Paul talks about leaving what is natural for what is unnatural, he's not talking about a person's sexual drive. He's talking about this natural revelation that he's already alluded to in chapter 1. Remember, context. He's going back to Genesis and God's design for human sexuality when he created the universe and he created humanity. And he said, this is what's natural. This is what God created in nature in the universe. And in this passage he said all these sins, all these sins, the murder, the the envy, the homosexuality, all of them grow out of the lust of the heart, the desires of the heart. You see, what may seem natural to humans is quite often sinful, not just homosexuality. But our human impulses and passions and desires that cause us to strike out. All those human compulsions and drives that we become addicted to. It's how sin works. It's how sin works. Well, I could spend the rest of the sermon here, but we've got to we've got to we've got to move on. Let's look at two more New Testament passages and we'll consider them together, okay? And we won't take quite as much time on these. Turn in your Bible, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's read together starting at verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not go to heaven? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, if you've got the NIV or some other modern translations, it may not use translate the word effeminate. It may just say those who practice homosexuality because what it does is rather than translating each of those words, it kind of runs them together and creates the sentence, the phrase, practice homosexuality because both words have to do with homosexuality. But in the Greek, there is the word for effeminate or weak or soft and uh, the homosexuals. And then in verse ten, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of God. So he says, those who do those sins as a lifestyle will not go to heaven. Now, First Timothy chapter one. First Timothy, chapter one, a couple of verses. Verse nine. He said, and and by the way, we looked at this back in July, and he says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Remember from July, God gave us the law, and one of the purposes of the Old Testament law is to reveal what is right and wrong, what is sin and not sin. Okay. So the law is for that purpose, and and, and some of the sins are listed here, those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers or slave traders, literally, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now these are two passages that seem pretty clear, and yet there are some who argue these passage do, passages do not say that homosexual behavior is a sin. What they what they say is this: again, and you'll see you'll see a pattern here. It's, 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 they didn't know anything about loving committed homosexual relationships, so it's not condemning those kind of. Relationships. All it's condemning is promiscuous homosexuality. All it's condemning is abusive forms of homosexuality. And what they argue is this the the Greek words that are translated in our English Bibles, homosexual here, and then in Corinthians, effeminate, are not talking about a normal, loving, homosexual relationship. They're talking only about these abusive type homosexual relationships, promiscuous homosexual relationships and they say that for this reason in the roman world now this isn't true everywhere but in the roman world homosexual practices among the very powerful and the wealthy was like this you'd often have uh, the, the emperor for example would be an, he he would often many of the roman emperors did this but wealthy people powerful men would have a younger man even if they were married, they would have a younger man with whom they engaged in homosexual behavior. And many times that younger man would be indebted to them or be a slave, et cetera, and, and therefore it wasn't an equal relationship. And there's a couple of places in ancient literature where the Greek word that you see on the screen here for homosexual, that's the, the Greek word that's used in Corinthians and Timothy, it's really a combination of two words: the uh, the arsino, which is the male, and then the uh, the other word for to to be in bed, to lie sexually with someone. So you put them together, and you got a male lying in bed with another male, homosexuality. They say there's a couple of places in ancient literature where that Greek word was used to refer to the dominant male in that Roman type of. Roman Empire type of homosexuality. And the word that in uh, Corinthians is translated to feminine means soft. It can be used for something that's soft and weak, either a thing or a person. So soft clothing, soft china, but also soft people. And it's a word that sometimes was used for the passive male in a homosexual relationship. Well, you get the image, okay? I won't say any more about that. And so, because of that, because there's a couple places they say, well, that's all it's talking about is that dominant abusive Roman experience. The problem is that's simply not the only way that word is used. They're false when they say that that's the only way it's ever used, and therefore they'll, they'll you'll even read some who will go so far as to say when the early Christians knew that, and therefore they did, the early Christians in the early church did not consider homosexuality a sin. They only considered what the Romans did with that abusive type of homosexuality a sin. Well, that's historically inaccurate. You remember last Sunday we looked at the passages in Leviticus 18 and 20? Guys, go ahead and put that up on the screen. Two very clear passages. Well, about 300 years before Jesus, now listen to this. About 300 years before Jesus, the Hebrew Old Testament, remember, remember guys, Old Testament originally written in Hebrew, New Testament originally written in what language? Greek. So about 300 years before Jesus, a group of 70 Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek because most people read Greek. During the time of Jesus, most people spoke, most Palestinians, most Jews, probably Jesus, spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They, they, they spoke many languages. And so 300 years before Jesus or so, they translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and many times in the New Testament... When the Old Testament is quoted, it's not quoted from the Hebrew Bible. It's quoted from this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That, he, that Greek translation of the Old Testament is called, it, called the, Septuagint, the Septuagint, however you want to pronounce it. L-X-X referred to in history because of those 70 scholars. And here's the interesting thing. When they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, And they came to the passage in Leviticus about a man lying with a man. Homosexuality. Do you know what Greek words they used? The ones that were on the slide just before this. The same words that Paul uses in Corinthians and Timothy. And so therefore, to say that these Greek words only refer to this abusive type homosexuality that was practiced in the Roman Empire is historically inaccurate because 300 years before it was used to translate every day homosexual practices. And so the word means exactly what the word means. And you'll read in the literature sometimes, they'll say all these Christian scholars and theologians and all these Greek scholars over all the years have been wrong, we understand what this word really means, and we go back and the early church would have would have understood that. Well, we'll no, the, the early church read, when they read the Old Testament, most of them read that Greek translation, the Septuagint. They knew exactly what the word meant. Now, you'll hear them say the early Christians, the early church, didn't consider homosexuality a sin. Really? There was a document that was written in the mid to late first century. So by the year 100, this document was being used in Christian churches as a, think of it like a curriculum to teach other Christians, a discipleship type material called the Didache. In that document, homosexuality is listed as a sin. And for the first few centuries, it was widely used in the Christian church. Early in the first century, a preacher named Barnabas wrote a long letter, a leader in the church. His letter became popular. In fact, there were some people who wanted to add it to the Bible. Written in the er, about 100 to 110, 120 A.D. Homosexuality is included in that letter in a list of sins. So anyone who says that the early church did not believe homosexuality was sinful, they're misstating history. But see, when you want to suppress the truth for your own purposes, that's easy to do. It's easy to do. Now, One last thing to help you understand why that claim is false when they say the early Christians didn't believe it was a sin. In the early days, the Roman Empire persecuted Christians, persecuted the church. In the 200s, the church, Christians, Christianity, started becoming influential in the Roman Empire as the gospel spread. And then you had Constantine who was baptized on his deathbed And suddenly the church was no longer persecuted and it started being viewed favorably until eventually it was considered the favored religion of the Roman Empire. Do you know what you see in the historical records as Christianity started gaining influence in the Roman Empire? Because the Roman Empire, homosexuality was a a big part of their culture, at least among the elite and the powerful and the wealthy. As Christianity gained influence, laws started being passed to restrict homosexual behavior. And then when Christianity was made the favorite religion of the Roman Empire, homosexual behavior was completely banned by Roman law. That very fact speaks to what the early church said about this issue. So any claim that the early church and early Christians thought otherwise is historically false. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians for just a minute. Let me wrap this up. 1 Corinthians. Now, next Sunday, I'll just tell you this. You know, these three weeks have been pretty heavy Bible study, right? Next Sunday, we'll do some Bible study, but a lot of it. I'm I'm just going to answer quickly several questions Are people born gay? Can people change? Many other questions. We're just going to talk about those real quickly and do some Bible study next Sunday, okay? But here's something I want you to see today from 1 Corinthians 6. In, in this list, he talks about more than homosexuality. Those who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, he says, are fornicators. Those who have sex outside of marriage, adulterers, adulterers homosexuals, thieves, co- people who covet Drunks, swindlers, cheats, those who you know, cheat people, swindlers. <laughs> As some of you in here word, you're not going to go to heaven, right? <laughs> Notice what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you, but. You were washed. You ever gotten dirty and gone in and water and soap washed off, and gotten clean? Washed in the blood, cleansed, forgiven? Such were some of you, but you've been washed, cleaned by the blood of Christ, the gospel. You were sanctified. You know what sanctified is? You go to the Old Testament, the temple, and before that, the tabernacle, and there were these objects in there, these instruments that they used in worship, and they would be sanctified, dedicated to the service, to the worship of God. Treated a certain way because they were sanctified, set apart, belonging to the worship of God. The Bible teaches that as Christians, you and I are sanctified. That doesn't mean just that we are morally pure. It means we are an instrument of of worship and service to God. We belong to him. That's the reason also in 1 Corinthians, in the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He talks in Corinthians about your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or reasonable act of worship. The biblical teaching is that when you and I are washed by the blood of Christ and cleansed and forgiven, we then become an instrument of God, a vessel that is to worship and honor and serve God. Our total being, our body, every our essence, everything about us And and the morality, the ethics of our conduct grows out of not us following a bunch of rules but grows out of the fact that we are sanctified. We are those vessels belonging to God. We are possessions of God and therefore we look like it. We act like it. That's what sanctification is. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody's had an affair, does that mean they can't go to heaven? If somebody's ever committed adultery, does that mean they can never go to heaven? Fornicators, if somebody has sex outside of marriage, does that mean they can't go to heaven? Thieves. Swindlers, does that if they've ever cheated somebody, lied to somebody for their for financial benefit, does that mean they can never go to heaven? Hmm? That's not what he's saying. And there's other passages. That I don't, I'm out of time so I can't get into it today other than to say what the Bible teaches is that yes, we as Christians will sin and we can commit these sins. Christians can, can and do commit adultery. Christians can and do steal. Christians can and do covet. Christians can and do commit acts of sexual sin including homosexuality. But, When you've been washed and sanctified, converted, transformed by the blood of Christ, your lifestyle is not those things. In other words, yes, just like David committed adultery with Bathsheba, you may sin, but your lifestyle will not be day after day, week after week, year after year doing those things because if you have affair after affair after affair... You're lost in going to hell. You're not saved. If you're a, just an ongoing crook stealing from people, you're not, you don't know Jesus. If you're year after year after year in the homosexual lifestyle, no, you've not been converted by the blood of Christ. He said, some of you. That's what you were. That's how you lived. Now, as a Christian, yeah, we will sometimes sin. But your habitual lifestyle will not be these things if you know Jesus. The biblical teaching, I wish I had another hour and I could walk you through the text, but I know you want to go to eat, go to lunch. Biblical teaching that is, if you've been washed by the blood of Christ and you're saved and you fall into sin, God's going to work in your life and woo you back to Himself, convict you, discipline you, and draw you back to Himself. And either you're going to return to God or God's going to take you to heaven early. But if someone lives year after year and decade after decade in these sins, they've never been converted, they've never been washed. Because a genuine Christian can't live on and on and on and on in these kind of lifestyles. It's none who we are. Now anyone in these lifestyles can be converted and saved and changed because... That's what Paul said happened to some in the church. When he said, such were some of you, he was referring to swindlers, he was referring to thieves, he was referring to adulterers, and he was referring to homosexuals. And don't you allow the world to tell you that people can't change because in the power of Christ, that as Paul said in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to those who believe, God can change anybody. Now, Christians... Just like some in the gay community today want to twist what the Bible says about their sin, we have a way of pulling God down to our level, creating God in our image to justify our sins. And we need to use the Bible like a mirror. When you read these sin lists in 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, homosexuality is not the only sin listed, correct? Am I right? When you read the passage in Romans about people rejecting God's authority and rightful place as creator, homosexuality is not the only sin, is it? Is adultery in that list? Is sex outside of marriage in that list? Is stealing in that list? On and on and on we could go. It's in that list. Use the Word of God as a mirror and stop bringing God down so that you in your own futile speculation can justify your particular sins. Use it as a mirror. Use it as a mirror. Now, one last thing and I'm done. Have any of you ever in your family, you ever ha- have you ever had a relative? Have you ever had a relative, you ever had a really good friend, have an affair, and because of it, their marriage end anybody okay what did you what did you do? any of you ever had a relative or a really good friend struggle with alcohol drugs? He talks about drunkards in this passage, doesn't he? you ever had anybody struggle with that? What did you do? Did you say oh, it was okay, you didn't do anything wrong no. Right? You, you didn't say that. You said, no, what you did was wrong, right? But what else did you do? Did you, did you pray for them? Did you pray for that relative who had an affair and messed up their marriage? Did you pray for that relative who struggles with drugs or alcohol? Huh? You didn't agree with them. You said, you're wrong. What you did was wrong. You prayed for them, right? Did you love them? Did you, did you keep loving them? Well, that's what you do with homosexuals. Same thing. Same thing. They're wrong. The Bible's clear. You don't agree, but you pray for them and you love them just like you do those who are guilty of all these other sins. Let's stand.